We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we explore pop culture from a Jewish perspective and Judaism from the point of view of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And on this podcast, we are going to be talking about uh, the uh, 2019 uh, feature film from South Korea, Parasite, which just won Best Picture at the uh, 92nd Academy Awards, along with a slew of other awards. And we'll also kind of lump in there uh, a conversation about uh, about the 2020 Oscars uh, and uh, some other themes that are related to Parasite. Uh, Jesse, you want to talk a little bit about uh, what Parasite's victory at the Oscars uh, uh, symbolized and meant to so many people? Sure. I think it was really groundbreaking. This was the first non-English film uh, to win Best Picture. And you have that uh, connected to the other uh, Oscar that the film won in the category that was previously known as um, Best Foreign Language Mm -hmm. Film uh, was retitled uh, and repackaged as International Feature Film. And understanding that... Uh, just because a film is not in English, that does not mean it is foreign. Uh, and it does not mean that it doesn't have something to teach uh, the members of the Academy, doesn't have something to teach the North American uh, movie goers and movie watchers, our society. Um, when the director of Parasite, uh, Bong Joon-ho, uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, there may be uh, a number of names butchered uh, during this episode, and I apologize. Um, uh, something that something belies the, uh, the the conversation about whether these are uh, uh, foreign films or international films, uh, or at least the ignorance of your two humble hosts. Um, but uh, Bong Joon Ho, uh, I believe, it was at the Golden Globes when Parasite won a Golden Globe uh, during his. Uh, acceptance speech, he said, uh, the minute you turn on closed captions and and you're prepared to start watching movies with subtitles and not be dependent solely on the English language, your mind will be exposed to uh, so many more avenues of storytelling, of culture, and of um, filmmakers. Uh, And he was right that this was a film that... Candidly, uh, I will say, I was I wouldn't have probably seen uh, even though it won the Cannes Film Festival. I wouldn't have been interested in seeing it if it wasn't up for an Academy Award because it was up for Best Picture. I was like, oh, this is a movie that that stands out. Um, all the other movies I knew of and heard of, this was a film that I only heard of because of awards season. Mike, do you want us? Uh, Acknowledging that both you and I saw the film rather recently because it won the Oscar and we were both like, well, if it won Best Picture, we have to see it. Do you want to share a little bit about the film? 
Sure. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good point that, that you just made. I mean, I don't know if I would have uh, thought to see Parasite if it uh, didn't get all this award season attention, but I'm, but I'm uh, deeply glad that I, that I did. So Parasite, uh, as you said, Jesse, is uh, um, the new film from the uh, Korean director uh, Bong Joon-ho, which uh, American audiences might, uh, uh, who American audiences might remember um, as the director of uh, the film Snowpiercer, uh, which uh, starred Chris Evans from, nice. uh, um, uh, from Marvel fame. Uh, Great and, sci-fi uh, dystopian futuristic film. That's right. And, and also on similar themes, right, Jesse, to Parasite? Absolutely. Also, which we'll talk about, about uh, the caste system and class status and uh, income inequality. Right. So this is clearly uh, something that uh, Bong Joon-ho uh, thinks uh, quite a bit about and has uh, made films uh, about over the course of his career. And, and so Parasite, in, in a sense, is a, is a return to his uh, Korean roots. Um, the, the film uh, is, and, and by the way, you know, we're going to say about this, as we do for most of the films that we discussed that uh, major spoil major spoilers are ahead if you haven't seen parasite yet um i don't want to ruin anything for you there the movie takes some uh, some unexpected left turns uh in uh in in its course so uh you don't want to um be uh unsurprised when you when you see it this is one in which i think uh, spoilers uh really matter so if you haven't seen it yet pause the podcast now go watch it uh, you can rent it uh, on lots of streaming services, uh, and then you can come back and, and listen to the rest. So I saw it. I rented it on Vudu. Vudu. It's been lately my my go to uh, streaming service for uh, on demand rentals. Wow. Well, who knew the Vudu that you do so well? It's a spell. <laughs> Uh, I watched it on uh, Amazon because I just want to give all my money to Jeff Bezos. I really just think that uh, he should hold my bank account and then I can get whatever I want whenever I want. Uh, so, uh, but uh, now that the spoiler alerts are uh, firmly out of the way, Parasite um, it, uh, follows a poor family, uh, the Kims, uh, who uh, infiltrate the lives of a wealthy family, the Parks, by becoming their new employees. So it, uh, uh, the protagonist uh, is a young man named, uh, I'm going to, again, we're going to probably butcher these names, uh, Kim Ki-woo, uh, who uh, also goes by the Americanized name Kevin in the movie. Uh, and Very he, intentional that, uh, by the way, they, they gave him, the, the Park family gave him an Americanized name, that with these American names, that was a sign of success. Right, exactly. And that's, that's going to be an important part of the conversation later. Uh, so uh, Kim Ki-woo, Kevin, uh, becomes uh, the uh, English tutor of the uh, park's daughter, uh, Dahi. Uh, and uh, he then, uh, through uh, some, uh, some cunning and some guile, uh, 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 some, um, uh, it's, it really kind of has an Ocean's Eleven sort of quality to it. Um, a caper um, enables uh, his uh, sister, Ki-jung, um, who goes by Jessica, uh, to uh, pose as an art tutor and art therapist for the park's song, Da Sung. And uh, claims and that, right, that she is not his sister. She's just a, a, a right, friend of a relative um, right. that he had never met before, but, uh, but was overly qualified, which, of course, she was not. Right, exactly. She just, uh, you know, like lo looked on the Internet uh, about uh, psychology and kind of BSed her way. Uh, into the job uh, with uh, thanks to a, uh, a, the, a very gullible matriarch of the Park family who uh, was was a good, as, as they say in the um, uh, in, in the biz, a good mark uh, for this con. Um, uh, con 
artistry uh, is also, uh, Jesse, we didn't actually even consider this, but just a significant theme of our time, I don't, uh, wouldn't you say? Uh, sure, I think this has a, a bit of a comedic take on it initially, as you said, like um, like uh, Ocean's Eleven, um, like, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the film uh, Matchstick Men, uh, that, that film starred uh, Nicolas Cage and Sam Rockwell, uh, again, making the protagonist being the con artist. And so while we disagree with what they are doing, um, we feel for them and believe uh, right, that they're the good guys in some way. At least that's how it's initially suggested. Right. You know, the, the, the lovable scoundrels, uh, as yes. is uh, such a common trope. In, in films, and I think one of the things uh, that Bong Joon-ho does so well in the course of this film is he kind of defies those conventions and defies those expectations of this family. You know, are sort of the lovable scoundrels maybe at the beginning, but uh, become, they might be, they might remain sympathetic throughout the movie and might remain the protagonist, but they're kind of anti-heroes. Uh, and, uh, and, and the moral uh, canvas of the movie is, is, uh, is really quite complex. Um, so anyway, so he, uh, uh, through deceit, is able to get his sister, uh, Ki Jung, uh, uh, or Jessica, uh, uh, into uh, this family to be uh, the art tutor and art therapist for the park's uh, son. And then uh, cons, uh, 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 and then both of them are able to con their way into the family, uh, firing their longtime uh, driver, uh, framing him for being a creep, which allows them to uh, have, them have, the, have the park family hire uh, their father, who, of course, they don't out as their father, um, uh, key take uh, for the job. Uh, and then uh, they get rid of the park's uh, longtime and beloved uh, housekeeper, uh, Moon Guang, uh, framing her for uh, having um, a uh, contagious illness. Uh, and uh, that paves the way for the Kim's mother, Chung Suk, uh, to get the job. Um, so the parks don't know that uh, this that these four people that have entered their lives are all related and are uh, to borrow the the title of the film uh, parasiting off of this wealthy family. Of course, during the course of the film, uh, the the film is called Parasite, not the Parasite or the Parasites, uh, and it's a, it becomes increasingly unclear who is the parasite uh, uh, in in the film. That's one of the questions I think the film asks is in, you know, an economic system such as ours, um, you know, who is leeching off of who? Uh, and, uh, and, and what does that say and what does that mean? And, and uh, um, uh, ought it or should it or could it be, be otherwise? Um, and I would say, and Mike, then, right, that that's really the first half of the movie and mm -hmm. uh, uh, seems like a movie unto itself, that that is the movie that is, was full of um, dark comedy, uh, as you said, the the um, support for these protagonists who may actually be antagonists, but we see them as protagonists, um, having these con artists uh, believing that they've succeeded and that they've taken down the man, if you will, uh, for they who are at the bottom of the totem pole have tricked their way into financial success. And we say, oh, that's a great story. That's a... a, a uh, fun story, but the story's only half over. Right, that's right. I mean, most Hollywood films uh, would have ended there, and, but the story, this is why we gave a spoiler alert, this, the story takes a, a decided uh, left-hand turn when the, uh, when the old maid shows back up uh, uh, only to uh, uh, reveal that her husband 
um, has been living in the Park family's uh, uh, underground bunker, uh, which uh, many families in Korea apparently have uh, uh, to protect against attacks from the north. Um, living, at least wealthy families have, um, uh, has been living in the underground bunker for, for years uh, um, to, uh, to hide from uh, debt collectors. Uh, and so then it becomes a, a story of the, of the struggle uh, between uh, the Kim family uh, and uh, the uh, maid and, and her husband um, uh, uh, and a, a much darker um, uh, tragedy, um, in a way, um, for the second half of, of the movie. Um, anything that I left out, Jesse, that you want to add in? No, I would say if we are going to include spoilers, that then we could say, even with the, the revelation of um, Moon Gwang's husband's uh, Gyeonsei, uh, hiding in the bunker, hiding in the basements. Um, the reason why he was hiding there is because he was hiding from debt collectors. Uh, then it's this sort of thriller, right? The Park family comes back and the Kim family exposed. They were all hanging out there, drinking, eating. They have to hide so they're not caught. Um, and then like True Karma, once you know they, they really harm and hurt um, both the original housekeeper and her husband, uh, and it's unclear if Moon Gwang is dead initially or just hurt, um, although Garen Say is definitely tied up in this bunker. Uh, once the Kim family escape, uh, then they see that their um, semi-basement apartment, which is really uh, an apartment for part of the slums, right? It's an apartment for those who are living in poverty, uh, is totally flooded by sewage water. Right. And so they have to go to a, a gym, to sort of a relief center, when they're invited back for the next day for the birthday party of the uh, park son, Da Sung. Um, and that leads to the housekeeper's husband escaping from the bunker and um, attacking... Um, Kevin or or, or Kaitak uh, and stabbing the daughter. Um, I'm sorry, Kim Woo. Uh, he attacked and then uh, stabbed and killed uh, Ki Jong. Uh, and then Jessica. what? What Jessica? And then what ended up happening? Right, the father, uh, the patriarch of the Kim family, ended up um, killing this man. And then hiding in the bunker of this house that the family did not know existed, hoping that he would one day be saved and found. Mm -hmm. So really, uh, right. the, it ends with this vision that Kevin um, or or Ki uh, Wu has that one day he will be wealthy, buy that house, and set his father free. This dream of attaining wealth that uh, he knows deep down inside and we all know is in a reality. Right. It's, it's just a fantasy. And, and one thing that you left out, I think there, Jesse, is that uh, um, the uh, 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 key um not only kills uh, uh, Gunsei's uh, husband, uh, but also uh, the, uh, the, the patriarch of the Park family, um, who... Um, when uh, um, when the husband comes to uh, to attack everybody, he uh, sees the this father uh, who uh, who he's sort of admired from a distance for a long time. Uh, in part, 
you know, in gratitude for letting him, you know, live in his basement, even though he's been doing it um, uh, with, uh, you know, clandestinely. Uh, and he says to, he said he looks at him and says, you know, much respect. Uh, and the uh, the the father uh, holds his nose because of the stench of this person who's been living in the basement for years and years uh, with, uh, with without, you know, adequate hygiene, um, which causes uh, which causes uh, um, uh, um, uh, Kitek uh, to, uh, to to kill him. Um, so, uh, you know, that's. That, that there's there's really I think a powerful symbol there that uh, that uh, director Bong um, is is offering about the about the way in which uh, impoverished people sometimes look at the wealthy uh, and the way the wealthy sometimes look at impoverished people uh, and then in addition to it and this is I think a good place to jump off into uh, a, a conversation about how this intersects uh, with Jewish values um, is that uh, that that sort of you know um, uh, epilogue to the movie or the, the conclusion of the movie in which uh, Kevin, uh, it, you know, it kind of imagines uh, buying this, you know, uh, uh, ascending the socioeconomic ladder, buying this extremely extravagant house uh, that where his father's living in the basement now and setting him free and realizing that that's just a fantasy um, is, I think, one of the central arguments of the movie is that uh, we live in a time in the 21st century uh, where we have this illusion um, of social mobility and economic mobility. We have this illusion of opportunity, uh, but, it, but it's really just that. It's really an illusion. Uh, and, and the reality is um, that if you are born rich, you are likely to remain rich, uh, and your children too. Uh, and if you are born poor, you're likely to remain poor. There isn't a lot in the middle. We have it. This is true in America. I suspect it's true in uh, in South Korea, where uh, obviously there's a lot of uh, um, uh, American idealization uh, that there isn't really much of a middle class to speak of anymore in in America. Um, there really are two classes in America. There, there's a there's there's wealthy. Uh, and there's poor. And though we have this image of the, you know, this sort of myth of the American dream that, you know, with, with hard work and gumption and determination uh, and grit, uh, you can uh, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and and make it. That may be true in, you know, anecdotal cases, uh, but systemically it's not true. Systemically, uh, you are very likely to uh, remain in life the, uh, the, in, in the socioeconomic uh, level that you were born into. Um, Cory so, Booker tells a story uh, when he was on the campaign trail, when he was still uh, running for president, that his father would always used to say to him, don't act like you got a triple when you were born on third base. Right. right. Th th this idea that success isn't always attributed to and the result of hard work as much as it's the result in all of our cases uh, of those who came before us and set that up for us. Right. Uh, so I think that that's really a good place to, to jump off of, uh, Jesse and talk about this because, you know, when I was watching this movie, which I think, you know, was obviously a Korean movie, but could have very been, e could have easily been, you know, made in, uh, in and about, uh, the, the, the socioeconomic system in the United States in our time, uh, uh, um, uh, realities that I think, uh, both help explain the rise of, Donald Trump, um, and also that explained the 
uh, popularity of figures on the left, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, even people who are you know more or less considered to be moderates, like Pete Buttigieg, talk about this all the time. So I think that this is it may not be universal, but it certainly is uh, is is um, uh, reflects the truth about uh, uh, contemporary American life too. Uh, it, it it got me wondering and thinking um, about. Uh, what Jewish tradition would say um, about um, this socioeconomic reality in, in which we find ourselves, this you know, lack of mobility, this lack of uh, opportunity, um, uh, this sort of caste system uh, that, we, that, 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 uh, that we've constructed for ourselves in, in you know, 21st century capitalism. Um, you know, what, what would Judaism say about that? And, and what, if anything, is the you know, economic vision of of the torah well that's a really difficult question yeah um, right let's write I, I, a dissertation I, about it right now i would say that um i'm not sure judaism um believes and supports in socialism um in the way that at least is constructed i do think judaism uh understands our obligation to care for each person and to provide for each person, right? The Torah is very clear that there shall be no needy among you, but three verses later it says, as long as there are those who are needy, you should not close your hand or your heart to them. An idea that there shall be no needy among you is... Um, what we strive for. We strive for a society where nobody is in need and we provide for them until we get to that point. But it's also a, a uh, realization uh, that um, providing for everybody who is in need doesn't mean that there's a limit to the success uh, one must have. Uh, the Talmud certainly, in many cases, um, treats wealth as a positive thing, especially, I, I would say, um, when it is uh, attributed on one's own hard work, right? In Masachet um, Brachot, Brachot 8a says, one who benefits and attains wealth due to their own labor, their own success, is greater than one who has Yirat Shemaim, one who fears God and fears heaven. Um, do we, is the wealth that we gain due to our own success, or is that on the backs of workers who, um, don't have that same success, right? They're working hard and they're not seeing the money as a result. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. My, my teacher, uh, Rabbi Ed Feinstein, uh, once said uh, to, to me and my fellow classmates that, you know, that I think the, the Jewish tradition views money as morally neutral, right? It's not that we believe that, that, that wealth is equivalent to evil, um, or that poverty is equivalent to saintliness, right? It's it's that uh, it's that you know money, resources, wealth um, really uh, are, are are tools uh, or weapons, and it depends on on what it is that you that you do with them or or don't do with them. And too much or too little of anything, right, is not good. The the Nevi'im, the prophets, which I think is a part of the Hebrew Bible that Jews don't spend nearly enough time studying, right? It's here, the Hathorah is usually the, the, that's what all of our B'nai Mitzvah chants, and yet that's when people doze off or go to the bathroom during Shabbat services, <laughs> uh, right? The, the, the teaching not, of the prophets. Not, not in my, not in my <laughs> synagogue with righteous and saintly people, but maybe in yours. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the teachings of the prophets, they were deeply concerned 
with too much wealth, excess wealth, uh, and the accumulation of wealth at the expense of lack of wealth from another, right? Isaiah condemned those who would join a house to a house and a field to a field that would just buy up tons of property and lands because um, land is finite, right? So if you only have so much land and somebody buys all this land, that means as a result, there are people without enough land or without any land that were deeply concerned. And the, the Torah actually has an answer to that with the... Uh, with, with the Jubilee year, the, the Yovel, right? The idea that every 50 years, one, there was an erasure of debts. You don't have somebody hiding in the bunker of a mansion because they are hiding out for four years, never going outside because they're hiding out from debt collectors. Um, and you also have um, not just the erasure of debt, but also that you give back property, um, right. right? This... Uh, expropriation of property every 50 years, doesn't matter how much wealth you accumulate at a certain point, everybody sort of goes back to zero. Right. So, I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the Jubilee, uh, and it's your know, related idea in the Torah, uh, the Shemitah or the sabbatical year, um, are really radical, um, economic reorientations, right? You know, you, um, uh, the, uh, um, the, the, the absolution of debts, the freeing of slaves, the, um, the, the return in the Jubilee year uh, to uh, ancestral holdings, um, it, you can, you know, it, it's, it's virtually unimaginable in, you know, in, in sort of a, um, a, a, a society that is sort of founded on, on kind of capitalist ethic um, in which, you know, um, uh, uh, people are encouraged to uh, make as much and take as much as they possibly can. Um, to then have a have a system where um, you have to basically relinquish all of that every every two generations. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty radical, and one can imagine uh, what that would do uh, to a society. I mean, it, it it might have the effect, and scholars have have studied this and debated this, but it might have the effect of of you know virtually um, eliminating um, uh, socioeconomic uh, classes, right, or at least in a permanent sense. Um, that there's there's a sort of you know like shaking of the etch a sketch um, right. or, uh, or 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 equalization. It's you know it is in some ways what um, uh, candidates like you know Sanders and 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 Warren uh, talk about when they talk about the you know the the absolution of of student debt uh, and, uh, and and various other forms of of uh, debt relief um, and other kind of um, you know uh, economic measures that um, address. Um, generational injustices. You know, I was just thinking about this uh, the other uh, the other day because I was uh, we're working on uh, some things in Richmond. Richmond has uh, the second highest eviction rate in in the country, um, which you know you might say to yourself, well, like you know, why can't we be number one? Uh, but we really don't want to be uh, anywhere near number sure. two or number one. Uh, and uh, uh, and so we're thinking about you know how how to resolve this. But you know, it, the, the the issue of eviction is of course not only about eviction. The issue about eviction is about affordable housing. Um, it's about, uh, you know, the, the history of, of redlining uh, and, uh, and, and other forms of uh, racial injustice, voter suppression, uh, um, school inequity and segregation, uh, before that, uh, generations of, of slavery and then, uh, and then intimidation, right? There's, there's just a, um, a collection of issues, which is why 
uh, Tanahasi Coates uh, in in one of his groundbreaking articles for the Atlantic on uh, reparations. Um, basically, he tied. Usually, you talk about reparations as you know payment for uh, for the debt of, uh, uh, you know, of of not paying uh, 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 enslaved Africans, uh, but uh, but he tied it to the history of segregation and redlining uh, and school inequity uh, in in the country to say that there's you know that that uh, that the only way actually to solve the uh, the the racial disparities, the the economic and, and social disparities that exist among race, um, is reparations. That uh, you know, uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, talks about uh, uh, a Marshall Plan, as it were. He calls it the Douglas Plan, I think, a Douglas Plan for Black America. Um, you know, and 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 part of me feels like, okay, you know, we might be able to create um, you know a few thousand units of affordable housing stock in Richmond, but even that is not going to solve the problem. Of um, of of the eviction rate, uh, what's ultimately going to solve the problem is is a significant investment um, uh, in in the African American because that's who disproportionately affects the African American community in Richmond um, that has been you know generationally left out of the opportunities for for wealth building and social mobility. Yeah, the uh, the article you were talking about uh, that Tana Asikosa wrote that was in uh, a 2014 edition of of the Atlantic. Um, but all of that, whether it's reparations, whether it uh, is um, this jubilee where everybody has a uh, do over and start over at a certain point to prevent this uh, deep, deep class system. Uh, so that those who have family wealth and are generationally wealthy, rather than earning it based on their own labor, um, you, you can't have a a class distinction um, a, as a result. Um, all of these are ways to avoid um, this caste system. Um, and it's a caste system that I think is deeply problematic that we see um, all over in our country. You know, we often use the term uh, upper middle class, uh, that we're upper middle class because we ourselves feel uncomfortable calling ourselves upper class right. uh, because we have our own financial struggles and we are not part of the 1%. Sure, but truthfully, most of us are part of the 5%, um, right? That, that's um, if we're well off enough um, to not be worried about where our next meal is coming, there really is a shrinking middle class in this country. Um, there's a big gap between the quote-unquote upper middle class, right, that 5%, and that 1%. Um, that gap is often hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, right. But that being said, uh, there's a much bigger gap between uh, those of us who would probably fall in that upper middle class and those who, who are impoverished, the, those who are below the poverty line. Right. I, I think that that's really, that's really, really important. Uh, it, you know, it reminds me, uh, I, I remember asking this of someone, um, an economics person, I can't remember now who, um, back in 2008, 2009, the beginning of the Great Recession, <clears throat> what we now call the Great Recession. But, um, but I said to them at the time, you know, what's the difference between uh, a recession and a depression? And, uh, and the individual said, oh, that's easy. Um, when you lose your job, it's a recession. When I lose my job, it's a depression, right? Um, and so we, we do tend to think about um, 
the sort of like the, the larger economy in those kind of personal ways, but also about the situation of other people in very kind of detached or dispassionate ways. So that, you know, that like as long as I'm doing OK, the economy must be doing OK. Right. So, uh, you know, and I, I see this that that, um, you know, the, the media narrative at the moment um, is that the, you know, the, the economy is doing great. You know, there's the, the Dow is at a record high. There's, you know, there's, there's lower unemployment than there has been uh, in, in a while. But uh, uh, it ignores the reality that for, you know, um, 140 million people, according to some estimates, uh, uh, are living in poverty um, or are, uh, uh, or are um, uh, low enough wealth um, to be, um, uh, disadvantaged or at risk, um, uh, or, or vulnerable, uh, in, in other ways. So we, you know, we, we, um, we kind of allow ourselves to, to, uh, buy into that narrative, um, especially when we are among the haves, um, and we don't have to really think about or see, um, or experience the experiences of, of the have nots. Um, I- I'm wondering if we could also shift to like the last quarter of the film when the family when the kim family leaves and finally sneaks out of the park home without being caught after everything went down right they come home in this torrential downpour to their uh, semi-basement apartments being flooded by sewage water and i wonder what it, the the film is sort of teaching or suggesting about karma in this sense is to say um mm. uh, right mida kinegan mida so right um situation um, the, the idea that, uh, right, you do something and that something else happens as, as a result. Um, it's interesting that the movie begins and it almost seems like a joke at first that, um, uh, the, the son, Kevin, Kiwu, it's his friend, Min, who is the one who gets him this job with the Park family. He gives, um, right, he, he gives them a a scholar's rock, right? This rock mm-hmm. to hold on to, which they believe um, if you hold on to it, it's almost like an amulet. You'll get a lot of wealth, whomever possess- possesses it. Uh, and I wonder what it's teaching, right? Are are they at fault? Are they being punished with their apartment being flooded, even though the system was unfair? Right? Even though it's unfair that they had to work harder, um, they were still scheming their way to success and to wealth, are they punished in a way for being th- those con artists? You know, it's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, I think that on one level, yes, of course. I mean, there's there's sort of poetic justice um, to uh, to what happens to them in the movie, um, and in a way, there's a poetic justice of what happens to uh, to the Park family uh, in 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 the movie that um, you know that they. Uh, uh, spend their life, you know, exploiting, uh, the, the labor of, uh, of, of poor people, um, only to then be kind of undone, uh, by those, by those same poor people. So there is a degree of that. And that may be, you know, kind of wishful thinking on, on director Bung's part that there's, that there is that kind of justice in the world. On the other hand, um, that flooding, uh, doesn't just happen to the Kim family. Right there, it's not just sure. their home that's that's destroyed. Right, their, their whole neighborhood is wiped out. You know, there's probably a thousand people uh, or more who are who are sleeping in that gymnasium. Right, uh, the toward, impoverished toward the area of town. Yeah, toward the end of the movie, and and you know what what that brought up to me is you know the fact that you know for the Park family, 
they, there's no recognition or or really no idea um, that uh, of you know of what happens you know, sort of downhill downstream what happens to the other side of town so they call up the family or text them while they're while they're you know in this makeshift shelter having their whole area their whole neighborhood destroyed um and have no you know they don't check and say like oh i heard that your neighborhood was was destroyed how are you doing they may not even know where they live they just want them to show up for you know this birthday party they're more preoccupied with the birthday party and and i think about that like we tend to live in 21st century america um, in, uh, in, in socially, racially, and economically, and politically increasingly, um, uh, homogenous areas. So we don't really have exposure to, we don't really know, we don't really see, um, the, the conditions, the situation of people of, you know, different races, different classes, uh, um, uh, how, how they live and, and what their lifestyle is like. And because we don't see it, because we don't experience it, we don't really have to think about it. We don't necessarily have to make decisions uh, based on an awareness of that reality. That's all the more so true uh, of, um, of, of our relationship to the developing world, right? So I, I can remember, you know, the first time uh, that, uh, that, that, that I was exposed to uh, the, uh, the, the, both the urban and the rural poverty of the global South. I went to Honduras with American Jewish World Service when I was uh, in college on, on an alternative spring break. Um, and I had never, you know, I'd gone to the developing world before, but to like, you know, uh, nice vacation resorts um, where they kind of, you know, scurry you from the airport uh, in, uh, in, you know, in a, in a private car um, quickly so you don't have to see the, the you know, the, the poverty that exists between the airport and the, and the resort. Um, but going to uh, uh, cities and villages in Honduras uh, where, you know, where they produce the coffee that we drink or the clothing that we wear um, or the fruit that we eat um, and, uh, and, and seeing how they live um, so that I can have cheap gourmet coffee um, is uh, was was really a profoundly transformative experience for me. Um, you know, I, I think that actually with social media, with the Internet in general, um, we may be less homogenous than, than we used to be. Um, I'm not sure we ever were. We, we were as much aware of what's going on in other parts of the world as we are now due to I, I think of um, watching on Twitter uh, during um, the the the, the uh, attacks and, and civil war going on in Syria, and you could see um, people live tweeting uh, as their towns were were, were being bombed. Um, right, we have access to information, and if we are willing to do so, access to information and be more aware of the world than we ever were before. I would say the difference uh, is that. Um, for some, specifically for those um, of a certain class in their ivory towers, are less interested and thus less concerned with what's going on in the world. Well, I would I would say this about that, Jesse, that that you're right, that we have, you know, um, uh, we have more potential exposure to, you know, what's going on uh, in, in places beyond our neighborhoods and, and beyond our borders. Um, but we also have you know, the ability to uh, turn the channel or, or to turn it off or to ignore it. I, you know, I've, I've been thinking in this conversation about, uh, you know, about the, uh, the, the Torah portion cycle in which we, in which we find ourselves, which is the, the Exodus story. 
Um, and I wonder, you know, the, the, the children of Israel lived in, uh, uh, in a sort of, uh, um, isolated, um, uh, homogenous reason. They were kind of ghettoized in, in Goshen. Um, and I wonder if there was a degree to which, uh, Pharaoh's hard heartedness and, and in a sense, the hard heartedness of, of all the Egyptians, um, that were, uh, tolerant of the system of the regime imposed by Pharaoh, some, in some ways participating in it, was it because, um, they couldn't see the impact of it, right? Their lives were fine. Their lives were good. We get all the pyramids that we want and all the, you know, all the building projects, cheap labor. Um, you know, we, we get to live fine. Um, and so long as I'm not really confronted with the reality of, uh, of, of what's going on with these people, um, I don't have to worry about it so much. And I can also, you know, um, uh, denigrate their concerns or write off, write off their concerns. And one of, I think, the, 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 the impacts of the plagues, you know, why that is the method by which God uh, in the Torah chooses to uh, affect the Israelites' liberation, um, is, it, is that it, you know, forces the Egyptians, the average Egyptian, to confront um, the, to confront the pain and the devastation, uh, the poverty uh, that, uh, um, that the Israelites had to encounter, but that they never really had to, uh, deal with. Um, Mike, can I, can I switch gears a second, um, yeah. and ask for your hot take? Um, what did you think of the movie? We, we've been spending time describing it and comparing it to Jewish values. What did you think of, this is one best picture. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I, uh, um, and I think you had a similar initial reaction, Jesse, I don't want to put words in your mouth, yeah. but my, my initial reaction was, um, that it was good. It was enjoyable. Um, I, you know, I, I, I didn't think it was really anything special. Um, it, it, you know, it felt like a movie that I would have maybe found on Netflix, you know, had I heard about it and, uh, and, and, and enjoyed, um, but not spent all that much time thinking about, but I, the more, the, the further away I, I found, the further away I got from having watched the movie, the more it stuck with me and the more I was thinking about it and, you know, analyzing it and, um, and really, and was really troubled and disturbed by it, you know, in a way that, that I, I can't remember having been uh, for a film in, in, in a long time. I'd say the, the closest parallel in a way was, was Joker, um, which actually deals with a lot of similar themes um, and, uh, and, and if we want to take a meta kind of look at the Oscars this year, I think inequality, um, uh, is, was, was, uh, was, was a predominant theme. You have Parasite and, and Joker, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, deals with this in a way. There are other films too. Um, so I, I found myself more and more with distance from it, thinking about it, analyzing it, reviewing it, um, and really haunted by it. Um, what do you think, Jesse? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, don't at me. Stay out of my ass. Um, I thought it was entertaining. Um, again, I think I was, maybe this is what people talk about, the creativity of it. I was totally thrown off of the movie Shift Gears halfway through. I thought I was watching uh, one type of movie. Uh and then it switched to a totally different type of movie, um, right? It was a dark comedy that switched to a thriller of sorts um, that concluded to really be a social commentary. Um, I liked it. I did not love it. Um, 
I love that it won Best Picture in that, not that this is the reason it should have won, but I think we really broke new and important ground by having uh, a non-English language film as Best Picture. And I hope it will cause the Academy to really think deeply about uh, films that are produced outside of this country um, and what lessons they have to teach all of us in this world. Um, That being said, I'm not sure if I was a member of the Academy, I would have chosen it among all the nominees as a best picture. Um, And I say that saying that uh, I really like Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer is a weird movie um, that Bong uh, Joon-ho directed, um, but also is this dystopian futuristic commentary about um class and status uh i think i like that commentary more than i appreciated the commentary on parasite mostly because i don't know what the conclusion was the conclusion was we're stuck in this system and there's no way of getting out of the system uh and maybe i'm just the eternal optimist in me i wish there was a way to get out of this system well i think that i i think that uh I think that you're right in your analysis of, of the movie. Um, and I, you know, listen, I, I think before I saw it, um, I was polling for other movies to win, uh, like 1917, which I thought was really extraordinary. We talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, and, and even after seeing it, I saw, I felt, I found myself saying, you know, listen, I think that other movies I saw, um, were, were, you know, more, uh, were, were more showy, you know, sort of technical achievements like 1917 or, um, or, or, you know, had equally interesting things to say. Um, but, um, I, I, listen, it was, it was bleak in that way. And you, you know, it was a sort of surprised how bleak it was because you're right for the first half, it was sort of a dark comedy. Um, and then the thriller too. I mean, you know, you don't really expect the end of a thriller to be all that, um, especially, uh, depressing. Um, but the, but the, you know, the sort of like conclusion of it, you're right, is, is that we're, we're kind of stuck in this paradigm. I, I, you know, I think that um, uh, that to me, uh, um, you know, while I, I'm kind of like pessimistic about the current reality in the way that the movie is, uh, I may not be optimistic, but I'm hopeful. And, and what gives me hope uh, is uh, is is my faith and, and, and Torah, which says that, you know, that the way things are um, is not the way that they always have to be. Uh, and that we have an obligation to continue working to to transform them and to change them. Right? And one of, and you know among the things that our Torah and, and tradition say is that those uh, with more um, have responsibility to to care for those who have less. That doesn't mean that those who have less are inherently better people, and people who have more are inherently worse people. But it does mean that that people who have more have more responsibility, um, and that uh, and that uh, there 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 shouldn't be. Um, you know, a, an immense concentration of wealth among a few, um, uh, and a uh, and an absence of, of of you know any kind of meaningful standard of living uh, for uh, for many. I think that that is uh, in direct contradiction to the Torah's vision of of how society and how the world should work. Now, what exactly economic system? What political candidates? What policies we should adopt? I think that that's a matter of conversation and debate. But I think that what the Torah ultimately says, well, the prophets, I think, hit on this all the time. One thing I think the prophets uh, highlight is that they are realists about their reality, maybe even pessimists about their reality. But nevertheless, they have a hopeful vision, right? Uh, virtually all the prophets, even as they uh, condemn 
the exploitation and inequalities and injustices of their time, uh, they say that it's not always going to be this way, right? That one day, you know, the mount of the Lord's house will stand tall above all the other mountains and nation will not lift up sword against nation and neither will they experience any war anymore, right? As Isaiah says. So um, it, it doesn't always have to be this way just because it is and it feels very stuck in how it is. Um, things can change and we have the uh, ability and the obligation to work toward making them change. Right. The, the, uh, the arc of the moral universe is a long one. As Dr. King said, it still bends towards justice. Uh, it's just hard for us at times to see and appreciate that. Um, and to, and to, and to borrow the, from the name of a Jewish, uh, political, um, uh, activism organization, uh, it's incumbent on us to bend the arc, right? The, the arc may not bend, you know, all on its own. And, and we have a responsibility to kind of move, move it forward in progress. Right. Uh, Bereshi Rabbah says, uh, Genesis Rabbah, that while the world was created during six days, God created it, the world still requires work. Right. It's still that that it's an understanding that we are still God's partners in creation and we still have to do work to finish creating this world that God set out to create. I think our biggest challenge in society is that those in the upper class, right, those with the haves rather than the have nots, um, it's much harder for them to understand that the world is incomplete when they have accumulated wealth, whether it be by hard work or by um, family legacy and lineage. And uh, it's all of our jobs to teach each other uh, that we can't just look out for ourselves, right? It's not just imena nili mili. It's not just who, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? We need to do the work to not just look out for ourselves, but for others as well. Um, Right. And then the third part of that uh, statement from from Hillel, right, if not now, when, right, you know, that um, that we can't say, well, at some point, you know, the the um, things will get better at some point, um, you know, we'll we'll be able to move beyond the paradigm that we're in. Um, We have a responsibility with the time that we have, um, because who knows what tomorrow will bring uh, to, uh, to to participate in the work now. Absolutely. Uh, where we want all of you to let us know what you thought of the Oscars. What did you think of the surprise winners and losers? Um, uh, let us know and also always be sure um, to subscribe and like and give us a review. Um, that will really help us share our Pop Torah with many more people. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care. <laughs>